You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm talking today about concussion. Joining me is Dr. Christina Master, who is a professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania and the co-director of the Minds Matter Concussion Program at CHOP. So thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Katie. We're going to talk about concussion, obviously, which is a mild traumatic brain injury. So how do you define this? That's a great question because I think that what we... um, often try and distinguish for families is that not every head injury results in a concussion, right. that it is still possible to bang your head and even get you know a bruise or a cut or a laceration on your head and not actually have a brain injury. And mm-hmm. so um, concussion, um, as far as we can tell from all the research that's been done both in um, basic science as well as clinical science, um, is the result of your brain shaking you know, inside your skull and all of the neurons stretching as a result of that shaking Um, which results in the injury of concussion. Um, So there's no bleeding, there's no fracture of the skull, there's no bruise of the brain, Mm -hmm. um, but really the injury is microscopic. Um, But it is possible to hit your head and simply hit your head and have Mm -hmm. your head hurt in one area where you have that bruise and actually not have that be a concussion. Mm -hmm. Usually um, the headache that's associated with a concussion or the symptom, um, the head symptom that's associated with a concussion um, is more globally oriented. So it's your entire head that either hurts Mm -hmm. or feels full or pressure. Those are the descriptions that we get from kids um, when they try and tell us what's not exactly a headache is what they'll say, Mm -hmm. Um, but it is more global in nature. So if you just have pain in one area over the goose egg on your head, Um, that may not be a concussion, actually. Mm-hmm. Right. So the bump on your head doesn't necessarily mean anything mm-hmm. if it's not global. Yeah. So after head injuries, I hear a lot of parents in clinic who tell their kids to just shake it off. Um, and they say, get back, you know, get back out there. Or I hit my head a hundred times and I'm fine. So how do we educate student athletes about when to seek medical care after a head injury when they're playing um, in a game? It is really tough. I think that it's not, it's easier said than done, to be honest. And mm-hmm. I think that from that standpoint, because not every head bump results in a concussion, you know, we don't want necessarily every kid or athlete, you know, with every head bump to say, oh, I've got to stop everything that I'm doing dead in my tracks. Right. Um, and then, you know, remove myself. And yet, I think that what we're looking for is that if you have um, a head injury that is, enough of a force that results in symptoms um, that they would recognize that those global brain symptoms are something that you do want to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that from that standpoint, um, uh, education is a really key part of that, where when you're playing sports and exercising, um, you may not always recognize it, um, that you have those symptoms, and they may not develop until later for a variety of reasons. It may not be that they're ignoring it. It may just be that they haven't noticed it, either because you're um, you know, so... Um, you know, involved with the exercise and your sympathetic system is so revved up for exercise that you actually don't notice those pain symptoms until Mm -hmm. later. Um, And then also from the pathophysiology, we also know that um, the head injury is actually just the first step in the concussion. 
um, that after that stretch injury, there's a lot of metabolic processes that happen in your brain that result in the symptoms so that your symptoms can evolve. So mm -hmm. symptoms that you didn't have, you know, at the time of injury can develop an hour to um, or three hours, four hours later, even a day later. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not um, unusual and not that they were trying to hide anything or um, you know, trying to ignore anything. They just actually didn't develop. And right. so I think um, awareness is really the key and awareness of what specific types of in, um, uh, symptoms you're looking for after an injury. Mm -hmm. um, because again, you don't want to do it with every head bump, but you don't want to ignore the ones that do result in mm -hmm. um, symptoms that are important to pay attention to. Great. That's some good education that we can do during the sports physical. Absolutely. Sure thing. Um, some people think that they don't they don't have a concussion if they didn't lose consciousness. So how often do people actually lose consciousness with their concussions? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's definitely one of those um, myths that we've been trying to dispel over the last decade. Um, it used to be that that was like the definition. If you had loss right. of consciousness, you had a, a concussion and it was brief. Mm -hmm. um, what we're realizing now is that as we're paying more and more attention um, to how concussions happen, who gets them, um, and actually asking you know, questions that are more specific, um, that we're really realizing um, that lots of people have concussions. Um, uh, so the most recent paper that came out from the CDC just last month um, looked at the Youth Risk Behavior Survey mm -hmm. in 2017, and they added some questions about concussion. Um, they defined for them, the kids, the high school kids, what a concussion was. They basically had a blow or a jolt to the head that resulted in these global headache and other symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so they asked them how many times did that happened to them in the previous year. And the estimates from that survey were that 2.5 million high schoolers sustained a concussion um, during that year. And obviously, not that many people sought care in the ER. Right. You know, uh, maybe you know more kids than sought care in the ER sought care with their primary care doctor, mm -hmm. but probably not 2.5 million. Like right. We haven't mm -hmm. been, we don't have the ability to count all those 2.5 million. Um, and so, I think this survey was actually a good way of getting at you know how um, often um, you know kids get concussions. So if you use that as a denominator, it's going to be a really mm -hmm. low number that lose consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, it used to be that we would say anywhere from five to ten percent would lose consciousness um, and have a concussion, but the numbers are probably actually lower. Mm -hmm. And we think about concussion from sports, obviously, especially in our adolescent population, but what are some other ways that younger children get concussed? Absolutely. And so I think all the awareness has been driven by sports awareness, and that's great and important, mm -hmm. um, but definitely lots and lots of life concussions happen. And mm -hmm. so falls are actually probably the top cause um, across the lifespan, actually, so mm -hmm. in kids as well as in adults. Um, and then being struck by an object is probably the next most common, um, mm -hmm. and that's um, based on our data um, and data from also the CDC. Um, of interest, you know, if you were to look at adults, one of the most common causes that doesn't get um, talked about a lot is motor vehicle accidents, mm -hmm. actually. So the whiplash injury that occurs in motor vehicle accidents is exactly the kind of angular momentum that would be required to give you a concussion mm -hmm. um, as part of a head injury. And you wouldn't necessarily think of whiplash as being a head injury. Everyone thinks right. of it as a neck injury. Right. And so I think from that standpoint, you know, um, don't forget about motor vehicle accidents. But absolutely, you know, um, even though in adolescence, sports mechanisms of injury are the most common cause and the greatest risk factor for getting a concussion um, in the younger age ranges in particular, um, falls and being struck by an object are the next most common. Mm -hmm. We know that some people come to their concussion with some pre-existing conditions. So which of those do we need to worry about maybe exacerbating their symptoms or 
prolonging their recovery? Um, that's a really important thing I think that we're really um, interested in, uh, many research groups are interested in because um, we're trying to figure out you know, what differentiates the kids who um, you know, seem to get better real quickly um, and those who seem to take longer to recover. Um, if you look at different studies, there's definitely conflicting data. Um, in some studies, you know, people will say that ADHD, you know, can be made worse. And in other studies, they say actually it's not. Um, I think that um, the main ones that we would have you consider, at least, um, potentially being affected or being made worse or contributing to a, a more prolonged um, recovery would include um, a prior history of migraines, mm-hmm. um, uh, any learning or attentional issues, mm-hmm. um, uh, emotional issues like depression um, or anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a particular interest for us would be if you had any vestibular disorders beforehand, such mm-hmm. as motion sickness, um, and then any visual disorders you know, beforehand, such mm-hmm. as um, strabismus or um, amblyopia. And so um, those would be the things that we would look for right sort of off the top. Uh, but certainly, you know, what we would say is on any individual case-by-case basis, um, you know, uh, anything could potentially be made worse by a concussion. Um, and so um, having a really good um, previous medical history will be helpful in terms of just helping you approach the management of that patient um, and seeing where it leads you. Mm-hmm. Great. And besides doing a good history and physical exam, what testing can be done to diagnose a concussion or help with the diagnosis? Yeah, that's a great question because, um, you know, just in February, I think, um, the FDA approved a quote-unquote blood test for concussion, Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm sure your phones and our phones rang off the hook after that because everybody wanted a blood test for concussion. And so this is where the media also kind of like got the translation a little bit off, you know, from the scientific, you know, literature. Mm -hmm. Um, The test that was described and approved um, really was a test that... um, basically correlated with finding blood on a CT scan. Mm -hmm. And so what we know about blood on CT scan in concussion is that it's really, really rare. Mm -hmm. Most kids don't, as we know, go to the ER for a concussion. Uh, Most kids who go to the ER for a concussion don't get a CT. Um, And most kids who go to the ER and get a CT don't actually have blood on their their, um, CT scan. All good things. All good things, exactly. And so really what this blood test does is um, uh, gives you a level of confidence in the ER that if you have this blood test, um, and it's positive, then maybe you should have a CT scan. Mm-hmm. If the blood test is negative, then great, maybe you don't need a CT scan and mm-hmm. we can just observe you, which is currently the standard of care is to observe someone um, instead of CTing them mm-hmm. um, because of the radiation exposure. And so um, that blood test was approved only for adults, so not in kids. Okay. Um, that group did publish, and it includes um, you know, data from CHOP, um, did just publish recently that that test actually works pretty well in kids, you know, for detecting blood on CT as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually works pretty well for kids under five um, with an area under the curve of uh, 0.79, I believe. And so I think from that standpoint, I think that there is potentially utility, you know, in the emergency setting. Um, the challenge really is, you know, um, and we'll have to see how this works out in clinical practice, that if you were an urgent care or an emergency physician and you had a blood test and it said, you know, you don't need to get a CT scan on this kid, mm-hmm. um, and you're still a little bit concerned, would you really not get a CT scan on the kid? Right. You know, if you were still worried, we probably would say go with your clinical instinct as opposed to the blood test. Um, you know, but again, it looks like the blood test may be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's just looking, um, it just correlates with blood on CT scan, it's really not a test for concussion mm-hmm. because you could definitely have a concussion with and that. have a normal blood test, right? right? And so that's the key. So there's no blood test for that. Um, there's also really not any imaging for it either, right? So a CT doesn't tell you you have a concussion. It tells you if you have blood on your brain. Um, mm-hmm. 
uh, an MRI doesn't tell you about concussion either. And so all of those imaging modalities really are still um, you know, in the research mode and not ready for game time in terms of clinical use. Um, and so from that standpoint, there really isn't um, any test for concussion per se. Lots of parents will ask about um, baseline testing or computerized neurocognitive testing um, as um, you know, another form of testing for concussion. Um, and we'll definitely talk about how it has its place and its utility um, as a test. You don't have to have a baseline to be able to interpret a neurocognitive test, um, but really the neurocognitive test is not a specific test for concussion. It really is a uh, performance test, mm -hmm. and your performance on those neurocognitive tests can be affected by a concussion or it can be affected by the fact that you're tired or hungry or thirsty. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think from that standpoint, it's nonspecific um, in terms of you know, what's affecting that performance. Mm -hmm. um, so you can certainly manage a concussion without um, a neurocognitive test. Um, if you have it, it can be a nice piece of information to have as long as you know how to interpret it because it can be influenced by many things besides concussion. Mm -hmm. Great, good to know. In treating concussions, we've always recommended cognitive and physical rest, but how long to do these has changed over time. So how long should we advise patients to rest and how do we know how fast they should return? Yeah, and so that's really probably a million dollar question or maybe a multi-million dollar question, honestly, because I think from that standpoint, what we know now is that prolonged rest is probably not good for the brain, um, just like it's not good for your body. And um, from that standpoint, um, there you know, isn't evidence for resting someone for you know, weeks and weeks on end. Um, I think from the standpoint of what we've moved towards is um, the concept that uh, certainly, you know, early on, um, you know, removing yourself from play makes a difference and not continuing to play in a sporting event. There's actually really good data uh, at the college level and the high school level that um, not continuing to play with an injury mm -hmm. actually shortens your recovery time. Mm -hmm. So there is some ongoing injury that happens if you continue to play. Um, and so then that translates into, again, this whole concept of, you know, early on and in the really acute phase in that first couple of days, you know, some form of rest is probably useful mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons. One, so that you're not banging your head anymore mm -hmm. um, in that, in whatever activity that might potentially give you a head injury. But two, because there is a metabolic mismatch where your brain's um, metabolic demands exceeds um, your body's provision of fuel via cerebral blood flow um, to meet that demand, um, your brain really does want to limit the extraneous activities that it's doing um, in order to focus on recovery in that first couple of days. Mm -hmm. um, and so as such, um, the most recent consensus statement on the concussion and sport group recommends you know, 24 to 48 hours of rest. Um, what we'll do in our practice is you know, recommend that that's some kind of relative rest. You don't have to be bedridden in a dark room doing nothing. Mm -hmm. We would usually say that that translates into um, not engaging in any activities that make you feel a lot worse. Mm -hmm. you know, try and engage in only activities that help your symptoms improve um, as opposed to making them worse. After that, really, I mean, your guess may be as good as mine in terms of how rapidly to you know, uh, ramp someone up because it is probably likely going to be very individual. Mm -hmm. um, and so from that standpoint, um, the other difficulty is that for patients, it ends up being a little bit um, trial and error, right. that you don't know what you can tolerate from a cognitive stamina standpoint until you actually try. And so sometimes when you try, you may you know, miss the target a little bit, mm -hmm. undershoot or overshoot. And so what we'll try and guide our patients with um, is what we'll describe as being the two-point rule, that it's okay if your symptoms bump up a little bit, but then listen to your symptoms and listen to your body and your brain and take a break. Um, to give yourself a cognitive um, stamina break. 
Um, if you end up overdoing it, oftentimes what that results in is a real spiking high, you know, headache or a symptom spike. And so that's what we're trying to avoid because then that probably is an indication um, that you're really overdoing it compared to what your cognitive stamina level is quite ready to handle yet. And so um, I think that's where, since we don't have any real clear roadmap or tests that we can offer kids to decide how to make these decisions, a lot of education you know, comes into play. Um, a lot of great evidence, though, coming out of um, you know Buffalo and John Letty and his group, where we may be able to look at something like um, you know uh, targeted exercise and heart rate monitoring as mm -hmm. potentially um, a way of having an objective measure to be able to see how you can improve. Because um, when you exercise kids in a controlled fashion, um, kind of like exercise is a prescription. Um, in their studies, they've shown that if you um, do that, um, you can identify the heart rate at which they start to get symptoms, and if they exercise under that heart rate, they actually do fine. Mm -hmm. And then you can gradually increase them um, on a either daily or weekly basis based on how they're feeling and using heart rate target as the um, measure. That's very interesting. Yeah. So we do have a study ongoing with that. So we're hopefully going to learn more and have more to report in the future. Great. We're hearing more and more about potential long-term damage from concussions. So is one concussion bad or do I have to have two or three before I need to worry about long-term effects? Yeah, there's a lot um, of press about long-term effects right now. And I think what we're trying to do is strike some kind of a balance. And um, it's interesting for me because I do find that in my sports practice, I feel like I'm arguing two ends of the spectrum in that on the one hand, I'm trying to convince a lot of skeptics that concussions are real and you can have one concussion that can really affect your life you know, pretty substantially um, during that time frame when you're injured and recovering and trying to get back to full activities. Mm -hmm. um, and yet on the other side, on the flip side, I also am trying to um, allay parents' fears that one concussion is not the end of the world. Right. Um, that you know their child still probably will have to grow up, get a job, and pay taxes. Um, you know, despite having a concussion, you know, in their childhood. And so, um, and not to be completely facetious, but if you look at the you know data. Um, you know, again, uh, concussion is a form of mild traumatic brain injury. Um, there probably are some, um, for some folks, um, some subtle, you know, permanent lasting effects. Um, and yet from that standpoint, especially what we're learning in terms of um, recovery and rehabilitation, um, those um, long-term effects should be, um, uh, you know, malleable and something that is, you um, at least amenable to rehab um, and recovery, you know, really full recovery back to full function. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think from that standpoint, um, most people would not, um, you know, raise a lot of red flags um, with one concussion. Um, there isn't really any indication that one concussion will lead to late effects, um, you know, in terms of, um, you know, CTE or otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, and again, in terms of what's like quote unquote, the magic number, you know, is it really three strikes and you're out, right. you know, or not? What's interesting is that there is, um, you know, definitely evidence in the literature that um, at three, you do see a threshold effect um, in terms of a variety of things, whether it's, you know, um, uh, longer recoveries, mm -hmm. um, prolonged recovery, um, more vestibular deficits or mm -hmm. vision symptoms um, afterwards. And so I think that um, three is a number that's worth thinking about, but certainly if you're to reattain your pre-injury level of function um, and it was your first one, I don't think that there would be anybody out there that would forbid you from returning to a sport um, 
like football or lacrosse or ice hockey, but that would be dependent, you know, on who you're seeing. Um, certainly there was a study that came out, um, I think, last year where um, pediatricians are more concerned about football mm-hmm. uh, than potentially, you know, sports medicine doctors, you know, or, um, you know, other folks. And so I think from that standpoint, that may be a matter of, like, you know, perspective. And that was exactly my next question, oh. which is how how do you counsel parents and teens about sports that are considered high risk and how to minimize their risk? Yeah. And so I think from that standpoint, we will take a shared decision-making approach with mm-hmm. those families because we don't have all the answers. And so we talk a lot about in our office about how um, you know, we don't know, um, and we're still learning and hoping to learn more about what these long-term outcomes are. And each family has to decide what... Um, level of risk they're willing to incur um, and what implications that they may have for their families. Certainly there is um, a level of medical, um, you know, expertise that I think as a physician we all bring to the table in terms of, you know, trying to influence folks. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if there are patients who really are at the point where um, they're Uh, getting concussions more easily, having multiple ones, um, and not regaining their pre-injury level of function, um, where, you know, discussion about switching sports, retirement from a sport, you know, is, uh, I think, you know, warranted. Um, I think that oftentimes when we get to that point, um, it's really not news to them, you know, so it's not like I am telling them this and they're shocked at that. They've been going through the recovery, the injuries, et cetera, that they kind of know that they've arrived at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think with one or two uh, concussions, you know, uh, we definitely have those conversations where families would be like, oh, we're all better, but, you know, we're worried. And mm-hmm. so then, again, if that's a concern, that is something to take into account, you know, whether or not you want to return or not. What the challenge really becomes when you have a child who wants to return, a parent who doesn't want them to return. Right. Uh, because again, the child's a minor, mm-hmm. uh, the parent's responsible, um, and we try and lay out as much evidence as we can knowing the risks. Because the other thing that we will throw out there for families is that when we see concussions in our office, only about half are due to sports. Mm-hmm. The other half are due to life. Right. And it's not like I'm not going to clear your child to go back to life. Right. You know? And so in some kids, sports, um, besides having all the benefits like the cardiovascular and the neurologic and other benefits of you know, sports participation, um, you know, just from a socio-behavioral standpoint, mm-hmm. some kids might do better being in sports than mm-hmm. being, you know, left to their own devices with a lot of free time, right. <laughs> you know, so. Right. And um, I was going to say, when kids are recovering and we had those kids who we were keeping away from sports, you would see more depression and absolutely. other symptoms coming up that look almost hard to distinguish from, is this concussion or is this because we took away their whole social peer group and, exactly. and all the pleasure that they had from sports? Exactly. And so I think you do have to weigh both of those things, um, all of those aspects. And so it ends up being a complex decision. And so it's a little bit different for every family and every athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it's really important to weigh both the fact that there are definite benefits to sports participation um, and then what are the risks and how to balance those out. Mm-hmm. For us in the Philadelphia area, we have the fortune of having the Minds Matter concussion program in our backyard. So tell us about what you offer there that maybe we can't do in primary care, what you add to what we're doing in primary care. Sure. So I think from that standpoint, um, I think what we particularly have a lot of experience with are the kids who take a lot longer to recover. Um, I think that kids who are quick to recover, um, are going to return to, you know, regular everyday activities like recess and gym, um, you know, are exactly the kind of kids that, um, you know, primary care um, is really well suited to take care of because they're, you're their medical home, you know those kids really well, 
you know, that kids are getting back to. I think that the kids who um, are taking longer to recover or are complicated, you know, in that they've had multiple concussions and taking longer to recover with them or, you know, require um, more comprehensive global interventions. So those kids that have, you know, bigger needs and more complex and multidisciplinary needs are the ones that we'd be um, really happy to help you guys out with. Mm -hmm. Great. And we also have a concussion smart set at CHOP, which you said will be updated soon. So for anyone in the CHOP Care Network, um, you can access that as well. So for other listeners, where can we go to find some of the latest guidelines on concussion and to make sure that we are up to date? Sure. I think that um, the CDC has always um, uh, done a really great job of maintaining their Heads Up website Mm -hmm. um, uh, since its inception, I think, almost a decade ago-ish, a little bit less maybe. Um, And so they're always a good resource for, um, you know, in particular epidemiology information and otherwise. Um, Our website um, has a lot of information that we try and target towards patients and families, um, uh, coaches and um, uh, athletic personnel. Um, as well as like teachers um, and school personnel. And so I think I'm um, trying to make sure that we cover that angle. Um, and so hopefully that would be a helpful resource um, on our website. And we also have a YouTube channel that has um, you know, videos that may be helpful for physicians in terms of how we conduct our assessments um, and um, also um, just educational materials um, that people can look at um, from that standpoint. Those would be probably the two main ones. Um, but there are definitely programs around the country that do similar things. And mm-hmm. so I think um, you know, if you look, there is information out there. Um, um, and more and more people are trying to pull it together in an easy fashion for people to be able to access. Great. Thank you so much. I'm going to link on our website, which is www.chop.edu slash podcast to some of the studies that you mentioned, as well as the programs um, and external links that you mentioned as well. Thank you so much for what you do for our patients and for teaching us a little bit more about what's new in concussion. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.